Hello, please let me see your ticket subs for the double-edged double bill. This week, Viola Davis is extremely loud and incredibly close to the widows. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Thomas Mariani, and I just uh, fooled a couple people into giving me some guns, and I'm eating a hot dog in celebration. And I am Adam Thomas, and Max Von Sido is very clearly my grandfather right away. What? Uh, big twist. Ooh, what a twist. Oh my god, I'm so, so surprised. And spoilers out there for all you people who were just dying to see one of the two movies today. <laughs> the one that has Max von Sydow. I'm sorry, Widow's spoilers, yeah. everybody. Yeah, sorry guys. Yeah, it, it's actually Max von Sydow wearing a Liam Neeson mask. Uh, the biggest of all twists. But yeah. <laughs> Welcome everybody to the Devil Edge Devil Bill, where uh, every week Adam and I talk about a good and a bad feature we picked at the end of a previous episode. And, uh, you know, this week, uh, in honor of The Woman King is coming out, we decided to devote um, an episode to uh, an underrated actress, I would say, even though she's gotten an Academy Award, and she's gotten plenty of critical acclaim, but still, you know, deserves more praise even than she's gotten currently, Miss Viola Davis, who stars in The Woman King. Yeah, Viola Davis is the fucking shit, dude. I've always liked Viola Davis, you know, and it started with me, honestly, I, is, you know, and I'm sure it's no shocker to anybody, but her fucking voice, her speaking voice, is one of the most, like, silky smooth voices in the world. Yeah, and I would assume you might have, and maybe some other people might have heard her originally in, say, something like uh, Ocean's Eleven. She's one of the early voices you hear. She's interrogating Danny Ocean at the beginning. Yep, I actually just found that out, honestly, but yeah, for sure. Yeah, and she's one of those people who are definitely like, it's weird, we're going to be talking about one of her movies that's like actually her being a, a, the star in many an ensemble <laughs> cast. But she was usually sort of cast in traditional, like, character actors kind of roles, tend to be kind of like, you know, authority figures, or like hard asses, that kind of thing. And, you know, it's it's a bummer, because I think she has, like, such an interesting screen presence that she could be the lead of more movies. And I think, you know, part of it is just what Hollywood does in general with black women as actresses. But even, there's the other element that we don't often talk about because we're two white dudes, but the colorism element, where, like, most women of color who get lead parts tend to be those with lighter skin. As opposed to a Viola Davis. Yeah, she has. She's very, very dark skinned. Um, yeah, but that's. I mean, unfortunately, a hundred percent true. And you know, it's been that way for oh, I don't know, ever. And uh, it's it's really a shame because you do have these great actresses out there who are darker toned that just really don't get the chance they deserve. I mean, and you got to figure there's two of them in this movie alone. In Widows, I mean, with Viola Davis and Cynthia Erivo, I mean, they're both dark skin and they're both fantastic they don't get the breaks man it's fucking ridiculous i mean even when say cynthia review is gonna be getting a break now in terms of being a star of a big movie it's gonna be in wicked where she'll be green yeah yeah i mean doesn't mean it's gonna be a big movie i hope but well they're they're making two of them they're somehow splitting that musical up into two movies so it's oh, gonna for be... god's <laughs> sakes i didn't know that what the fuck <laughs> 
No, even as someone who has seen and likes that musical, I don't get how you break that up into two movies for the record. It's a very compact story. <laughs> Honestly, that could fit one movie. And for someone who's never seen the musical and doesn't want to, I do not need two of them. But anyway, anyway, so Miss Viola Davis, uh, we are devoting episode to her, and we picked two interesting movies at the end of uh, the previous episode where we were doing our picking. Uh, we'll be talking about first Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, which uh, was your bad pick, and oh, God. <laughs> unfortunately fits more of like the average role that she would get, I would say, yeah. just, like supporting like part of the ensemble. And then I'll be talking about my good pick, Widows, which was the one where I referenced where even though it's a big ensemble, she's still the lead character, I would argue. Yeah. No, she definitely is. I'd say her than uh, Elizabeth Tabecki, but yeah, for sure Viola Davis. But uh, let's go ahead and get into first or bad feature. Let's rip off that band-aid at him with <sighs> extremely loud and incredibly close. My dad said the way I saw the world was a gift, that I was different than everyone else. A great game we'd play was Reconnaissance Expedition. He told me to bring back something from every decade in the 20th century. I found something from every decade. Already. <laughs> you rock. After he died, I found this key in my dad's closet. How can I find the lock that it fits? What's it got to do with my dad? I told you I didn't know anything about your father. Finding what this key fits would be a miracle. I'm right here if you need me. So Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close came out on Christmas Day 2011 from uh, director Stephen Daldry and uh, was written by Eric Roth based on the novel by Jonathan Sarfin. And uh, this was a movie that you picked, Adam, and we both kind of like were you know, brainstorming about potential bad picks for you. And we both ended up with this one, I think, as a potential choice because this is a movie I only knew because come Oscar time of, like, that Oscar season for 2011, it randomly got a Best Picture and Best Supporting Actor nomination, despite not really getting a lot of the precursors. And everyone was like, what the fuck is this movie? And I was always fascinated by it, but I never saw it. And uh, now we've both seen it, Adam, and uh, aren't you glad about the decisions we make? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is one of the. This is one of the fucking, just such a pandering bullshit movie. I mean, it's it's awful. It's fucking awful. Well, why don't you uh, maybe enlighten some people who might not be aware of what this movie is and what what's the the basic plot synopsis for Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close? All right, uh, this kid who won Jeopardy uh, <laughs> <laughs> has Tom Hanks as his dad, and Tom Hanks dies in nine eleven. And they used to go like solve the puzzles together. And he finds this key after his dad dies. And uh, the whole movie is him trying to find what lock this key opens up. And uh, yeah, and that's about as interesting as it gets because the rest of it, like I said, is just emotionally pandering bullshit. Yeah, in case you can tell from 9-11 being a huge factor in this movie. Um, which well, this was around like obviously 2011. This is about the 10 year anniversary of 9/11 happening. And I remember mm-hmm. like obviously we had 9/11 movies before this, like you know, um, uh, United 93 or Remember Me, everyone's favorite. Yeah, right. everyone's favorite. Rain <laughs> was it? Rain over me. Also, Rain over. Yes, right. Yes, the the Adam Sandler film. Um, and uh, yeah, this is one of the more I guess sort of like infamous like big 
prestige examples of that um in which like you mentioned like it, it's so focused on like thomas horn who is our main kid who like you mentioned he was a winner on jeopardy kids week uh back in 2010 which naturally makes him such a great actor right oh yeah see i mean you're like oh that's our guy and you know i i do want to say for a first time actor like this is his first thing he's he's bad like he's he's not good but he's not the worst kid actor I've seen. I mean, there are some kid actors who've been doing it way longer than him, or are not even as good as this kid. And again, he's not good, but I, you would expect, honestly, way worse out of a first-time kid actor. Well, and not to mention that with any kind of child performance, it's usually not fair to blame the child necessarily as much as say the director. True. Uh, but at the same time, yeah, like he is like on this quest to find out what exactly this key is. And a thing we didn't kind of mention, and the movie doesn't explicitly say it, but he's heavily implied to be on the autism spectrum. Yeah, they say it at one point, like he tested for Asperger's, and then it kind of just right. goes away, like they don't really bring it up again. But uh, yeah, I, I think that's kind of the idea here. Right, because he does a lot of like, you know, the typical things where he's like, oh, he'll cover his ears whenever something uh, horrible is being said, or he'll be so focused on logic. <laughs> logic. I don't right, know if there's too much logic in this movie. Right, right, but that's his like whole thing. It's just like, what? what's the logic of, you know, my dad dying in 9-11 where like, a guy uh, flew a plane into a building and killed a bunch of people he doesn't know or whatever. It, it's a lot of that, and I think the trouble is when especially he is so has to carry this movie, it's like yeah. such a, it's a lot to put on his shoulders, especially when the only support he gets is like some flashbacks with Tom Hanks who plays his dad. Um, occasionally Sandra Bullock, we didn't even mention that plot synopsis because that's how much the movie really cares. About. Yeah, she doesn't matter. She doesn't matter until the last five minutes and then it's bullshit. Right, and then Max von Sydow, um, who got the Best Supporting Actor nomination, who we love Max von Sydow. Yeah, I love Max von Sydow, but, right. <laughs> but what? <laughs> Why'd he get a nomination for this? He doesn't right. have a single fucking line. I mean, it feels like it's such a like old man nomination because this was, you know, uh-uh. he died a co- like a couple years ago. So this feels like, oh, you know, we can potentially give him this nomination, especially when he's playing this guy who is specifically mute, does not communicate by talking at all, and has a little notepad that he scribbles stuff into. Don't forget about his sick ass hand tats. Right, of course, yes, says yes or no by raising either left or right hand. And, like, the problem is, especially, like, Max von Sydow could be great against this kid, but one, he doesn't come in until about halfway through the movie, and then when he does, he obviously isn't speaking. So, so much of the scenes is just this kid having to play off of, literally, just words that Max von Sydow holds up. Oh, God, I know. And he's in it for 20 minutes, too. I mean, at yeah. best. He's not in it very long, no, because he bails after a certain point. <laughs> Yeah, no. And then it's like the most promising idea of this. Obviously, the aforementioned key the kid finds is an envelope with the word black written on it. So he assumes it's somebody's last name, which, of course, it actually is, which is insane to me with a, you know, coinky dink. But the best part of this movie could have been him going to meet all these different blacks and having it be a bunch of different characters, more than you actually get. And kind of delving into their lives and what's happened to them post 9 11 and things like that, instead of just focusing on this whiny kid. Yeah, I think that's that's the big problem. It's just that, like, I, I agree that the few snippets we get where he talks about, like, oh, uh, this person named Black lives on this side of New York and this side and whatever. Like, there's some interesting little portraits there that I could have seen, I agree, like, just sort of, like, a, a journey of this kid, like, going from all these people, even though, to be fair, that like he says in the movie, if he went to every single person named Black in New York City, it would take, like, ten years or whatever. <laughs> yeah, three years if he visited two every Saturday. 
Right. <laughs> okay. Because he has to calculate that to the specific letter, which is another thing is like he has like the narration all sort of stuff. It's it's so many of these weird like autism ticks that feel so explicitly like, oh, this is Hollywood's understanding of what autism is, which is like yep. oh, it's like he's a savant, but he's quirky as opposed to like an actual like disorder that someone has to deal with. Surprised Jeffrey Rush isn't in here teaching him how to play piano. Right, true. Yes. But but yeah, so I, in case you couldn't tell from what we're talking about, Adam, you're not a big fan of this movie, are you? <laughs> I fucking hate it, dude. I really don't like it. Uh, I mean, pretty much right off the bat, to be honest, when when they're showing the, you know, it starts with the narration and stuff, I instantly was like, oh, no. Uh, I even wrote in my review, I got a lot of, like, Book of Henry vibes off this movie. Not inaccurate at all, no. <laughs> Fuck it, dude, go back and listen. I hate Book of Henry. Uh, I think we both do. But it's just, no, it's not good. Like you said, they're throwing all this shit on this kid. Like, this kid's got to carry this movie, and he is not up to snuff to do it. So he just comes across, like, unlikable. And he shouldn't be. You should really, really feel that for this kid's journey and, like, wanting to keep his dad's memory alive and all that. But really, you don't care. I was more interested in the Jeffrey Wright fucking little five-minute story than I was anything that this the whole movie did right yeah because jeffrey wright plays one of the the people named black that he goes to um who he is the uh husband who's being estranged from his wife played by viola davis who's the initial person we see in that household and immediately you know in that scene viola davis is holding her own she's like oh really for sure the idea of like a woman who's like who, whose marriage is falling apart and is still with this like kid that just suddenly come into her house or whatever the fuck it's it's not uh no, no fault of her um, especially playing off this kid. She does her best with this, like, annoying-ass young Sheldon kid. Who wants to make out with her. Oh, God, the cre- like, can I kiss you? Just, oh, God, no. Right, what oh. the fuck? No, dude. This movie is just ultimately, it's very much just, like, sort of cutesy tragedy movie, basically, about, like, you know, somebody dealing with the, like, lack of, you know, logical sense of 9-11, basically, just trying to deal with, like, that both on an emotional and, in his case, like, this logical level. And, I mean, I'm not against necessarily somebody doing a 9-11 movie. I think there are glimmers in this movie where I think they do a pretty good job with it. Like, I would say my favorite performance of this whole movie is Sandra Bullock. Like, when she gets to do something, like the scene where she's talking to Tom Hanks on the phone on 9-11 or even, like, later on, as much as as contrived as that whole ending is, I feel like Ugh. she's doing a lot to try and, like, make that work as much as she can. And, like, if anything, I would want more of, like, that story of just, like, a mother trying to, like, connect back with her son after, you know, he loses his father, who he was so much closer to. Yeah, right. That could be something interesting. You don't get that, though. Instead, you get John Goodman for two minutes for some fucking reason yes that that would be an interesting story i agree with you the the best scene in the movie as far as like oh fuck is when she's on the phone with tom hanks and she's looking out her office windows at the towers that is a very powerful moment but it's just that's really kind of it like the only other scene you really get is at the end when he's got his head on her lap and he tells her you know dad loved you said you were a perfect girl and she starts crying stuff like she's really trying to emote or, or even there's there's also the scene a bit earlier where like she's arguing with him after like she w- he wakes her up in the middle of the night and it's just like look yeah it's, it's not all about fucking logic okay like sure we buried the empty box but it's like that was your dad I was trying to keep like some kind of memory alive of him for the both of us yeah that way we right. can say goodbye to him you know right meanwhile yeah, he's good. being fucking young Sheldon over there just like being an yeah. asshole <laughs> I wish it with you like fuck you kid you little jerk off. Also, setting up Thomas Horn really badly when it's like, oh, hey, your movie parents are Tom Hanks and Sandra Bullock, two of the most well-loved movie stars ever, or your fucking parents. <laughs> yep, have at it. 
Yes, your mom is going to be played by Daniel Day Lewis and Tilda Swinton. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> but even, to be fair, like even Tom Hanks is very much like like the same thing. Like Sandra Bullock is trying so much. This is very much Tom Hanks in like a pilot mode. Oh, like, oh, I'm, I'm lovable dad. And, and anyway, Tom Hanks in pilot mode, better than most actors on their best day. Uh, but at the same time, oh, for sure, he's got a little bit of an accent, right? A little bit. And it, it works. Like, he's Tom Hanks. The thing is, Tom Hanks is always charming. You know, he, he's Tom Hanks. You can't not... I mean, I would hope you don't... Hate, nobody hates Tom Hanks. I mean, I know there are people who do because they suck. But Tom Hanks is like, you know, Jimmy Stewart. Man, where anytime you see him, you're like, oh, Tom Hanks. And you get a smile. Like, he's he's trying. He might be on pilot mode, but yeah, he's still better than 90% of the shit in this movie. Right. Um, as opposed to... Once again, we, we only get fleeting glimpses of either of them... And we keep focusing on this kid on this journey. And the inevitable twist, which you kind of mentioned, I do like the idea of, like, basically the reveal of, like, what the key is. Like, oh, this was, like, a total accident. This was a huge issue of circumstance where Jeffrey Wright had this, like, vase that he had accidentally put, like, this key to his father's safety deposit box. And and Tom Hanks got the vase and he was trying to find that key for so long. So it wasn't really, like, a thing of, like, oh, this is part of, like, a big scavenger hunt to find out more about my dad. This was just like, oh, an accident of like circumstance of meeting other people, which once again would be a story that could work if this yep. was more about like the weird circumstances of being, especially in a city like New York, especially it, when we're focusing on like, oh, let's follow all these random different people who are named black, as opposed to once again, just being about this kid being like, oh, fuck was or whatever, like his substitute curse words oh. that he fucking puts in. <laughs> Get the Fukunawa out of here. Okay. Right, yes. <laughs> all right. Yeah, it's well. He should, like I said too, you know, no, not even blaming the acting, but just the character is unlikable. He's a little prick. Like, you know, if you want to chalk it up to his, you know, applied autism, I think that's a cop out. I think he's just a little rude ass kid, and I don't want to follow this fucking little jerk for two hours. Like, I don't. Like I said, I, I'd be so like if he was just sort of our bridge to different character stories and sort of, like I said, where they're at post 9-11 and how it affected them either economically or family-wise or whatever, much more interesting than following this kid. And then the whole contrived wrap-up, I mean, it's just so fucking forced to me. I mean, I knew what you were doing. Oh, fuck off. What? What is this? It's just, uh, this movie's to me. I found it kind of insulting. I, I, I just, I really, really don't like this fucking movie. Well, no, it, it feels like very typical Oscar bait. Like the most, like if you look up Oscar bait in a dictionary, this is a great example to put in there. Yeah, absolutely. It's super emotionally manipulative. That's all it's trying to do is make people cry. I mean, even with the letter at the end where all the other people are reading it and crying, and you're supposed to be like, "Oh my god!" Like, yeah, I didn't care. I didn't care about anything in this movie. No, it all rings very hollow in a way that, like, the worst of Oscar bait would. And it's such a bummer that, like, this would be, on in any other world, a movie that tried to get Oscar buzz and was, like, laughed out of, like, the fucking critic circles. Like, how fucking dare you? Get this out of my fucking face. But in this 2011 year, which this is a year we've talked about a lot in terms of the Oscar stuff, where this is, like, the year the artist won and Meryl Streep won her Oscar for The Iron Lady, it's a weak-ass Oscar year. So oh, yeah. just like, oh, we got to get something in there for like the eighth slot or whatever at this time. So it's, it's extremely incredibly close, I guess. Sure. Well, and you're right. And you could tell even the idea of why they picked it is so hollow because A, it's got the cast and B, it's 9-11 related. 
So that's why they're like, oh, yeah, we'll throw this one in there. Even what you mentioned with, like, Jeffrey Rush in Shine, it's the most sort of insulting example of that, where especially, like, you mentioned, it's like, oh, he's got, like, some sort of, like, vague mental disorder, so we have to, like, really frame that as, like, oh, that's why he, like, acts kind of like an asshole sometimes. Instead of, like, no, you can make, like, a nuanced portrait of a person who has, like, autism or something like that. It doesn't have to be, like, the worst version of the kid from Jerry Maguire. Just, like, you know, the, the head weighs 7,000 pounds? Fuck you. I hate you, Mom. <laughs> and everybody else who's against me. <laughs> Fuck this kid. But he's right. smart, so... But that's because of his autism. So, bye-bye. He can invent paper fucking, you know, staircases and all that shit in that book. Which looked like the fucking one of the books from Seven. Like fuck off. Really, this is a serial killer origin story with this kid. I mean, like I said, dude, I, I I have no problem with invoking you know movies that try to invoke emotion and everything. Because I guess that's what every movie does in a way. You know, that's the point. But when it that's its only base to like, well, if you cry at it, that means it was good. Like fuck you, dude. Like this is just such a manipulative ploy of a fucking piece. Like. Fuck off. Like, just fuck off, really. I mean, you're cheap. To me, it even cheapens the real tragedy that happened. It's just, it's just a fucking garbage fire of a movie. I mean, especially when, like, so much of the imagery is about uh, Thomas Horn thinking that Tom Hanks's father is the guy who actually fell out of the building during night, which is a real thing. Know, which is, like, really know. fucking sick and uh, disgusting, quite frankly. That's disgusting. It was disgusting. And the line, you know, well, I guess all kids could think that that's their dad, too. Like, fuck you. But it wasn't all kids. That was a real man who probably had kids and a family, and you're fucking cheapening it. Fuck you. I just, yeah, this movie, like I said, it's insulting. It's, you know, granted, again, I was not personally really affected by 9-11. Obviously, I live in Michigan. I mean, I, I guess we were all affected in a way, but not at the level that the people in this movie were or that these characters supposedly are. And it just feels like trivializing the whole thing for people who really did go through these things. And it just feels like a cheap ploy to, to make a buck and to sort of, like I said, be emotionally manipulative. And, you know, how many people, I know a lot of people who go see movies and if the movie makes them cry or whatever, like, oh, that was fucking good. Like how many people, Forrest Gump, oh my God, when he cries at the gravesite at the end, oh, like who gives a fuck? Like, it's like, who fucking care? Oh, that's your takeaway? Fuck off. Like, it's just, I, I just, not. This is just insulting, bottom-of-the-barrel cinema. Well, and especially with, like, the 9-11 thing, I will say, like, obviously, I wasn't in New York either when that happened, but I do remember being a kid younger, even, than Mr. Thomas Horn when 9-11 happened. And I still remember, like, there's this whole thing in this movie where he's like, oh, they didn't tell us what happened, but we went home anyway. Like, I was in Florida and I was a very young kid, and they told us, like, a plane went into a tower. We were at least aware, basically, of that. If you're in New York City, they're telling you what happens. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I was, I think I was, I was literally 17 or 18. I was sleeping, and my mom woke me up, you know, out of my bed and in tears crying. She was worried that, you know, oh my god, you're gonna get drafted and all that. Just that immediately, immediate shock and, like, worry and all that stuff and it, it, i mean it was terrifying of course but even that though i think of it even like that like even someone like my mom who at the time you know she, it might have been for selfish reasons but she was incredibly emotional and scared and worried and we live in michigan i can't imagine how people felt in new york and for this movie to take that and really sort of trivialize it in a way not necessarily trivialize it but almost exploit it it's just to me it's just disgusting it's bottom of the barrel lowest denominator like 
let's get the feels out of people. And I, I just, I have no respect for that type of storytelling at all. Never have. I've talked about it on the show. I don't know how many times that I think emo- movies that deliberately try to be emotionally manipulative are fucking bullshit. It, it, to me, it's like, it's like getting just shitty jump scares in a horror movie. It's the cheapest tactic you can possibly take to make people be like, Oh, it was pretty good. Fuck you. Especially with just without really earning it, like the the manipulation really comes At from all. the fact of like yeah we're we're only using nine eleven as the veiled thing of like oh my god this is like the terrible day we it's a shortcut for like you all remember nine eleven right that was fucked up right right so yeah, so yeah, yeah. we we know what we're dealing with here so that's the shortcut and now you can all feel bad about this kid even though he's a fucking asshole which even the way you put it they even refer to it as the bad day in the movie. yeah the worst day. They refer yeah, to the them. worst state. They don't even have the balls to fucking say what it is. Like, fuck you, you guys. You fucking try to play. Just try to play it safe, and also at the same time, be like, oh, just fuck off. And like when they play the voicemails and shit like that, it's, it's oh, really for God's fun. sakes. Yeah, I mean, just. <sighs> and it's a shame because there's a way of doing like interesting shortcuts that work for like getting you emotionally invested, like with Viola Davis. To circle back to our topic. Probably the, one of the few bits of, like, emotional sincerity I got out of this movie is the bit where he asks, like, can I take a picture of you so I can remember you? And she initially is like, okay, sure. And then halfway through, like, as the picture's being taken, she's like, no, I don't want to do this. And she covers her face. That's a great way of indicating that A element. thousand percent. Yeah. Her husband's leaving. He, the, the kid's telling the story about how elephants, you know, can't actually cry. You know, whatever the reason. But, yeah, great. Great moment. Or even the, just the snippets you get of him taking a picture of someone who looks like she might be going through chemo or right. something like that. You're like, you could do something here. And they just don't even fucking... Like, at the end, which is like, oh, yeah, Mrs. Whoever, and then Mrs. Whoever. And, and you just get, like, a moment. Like, I want to see more about that old lady who was about to cry when he's talking to Sandra Bullock, and then just a barrel laughs when, he's, when she's talking to the boy. I want to see that. I want to know what that story behind that lady is. You, they do not even have attempt to give it to you. Nope, because it's bullshit. Because no, it's bullshit. Yeah, so I, I think that's that's uh, unless you have. Do you have any other lingering thoughts, Adam? As final thoughts before we get into our good movie. Uh just final thoughts is this movie fucking blows. It, it's like I said, it's an emotionally manipulative piece of shit. It, it takes something that was real and horrible and tragic and forever changed the landscape of our country and even the world as we know it because of our country's response and trivializes it and makes it a bullshit like pull to the heartstrings movie which can be done it it was a real thing and you could make a movie about you know sort of where people are at post 9-11 and the survivors of it this movie isn't that this movie is just a fucking just like look look 9-11 cry 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 oh little kid with autism oscars like fuck you Fuck you, this cheap-ass piece of shit. I'm enraged. Wow. Adam doesn't usually get this enraged anymore about movies. This is, this, this is a new... It's this been is a, a minute. Bottom of the barrel one. Yeah, it's been a minute. Been a minute. <laughs> yeah. This one is definitely deserving. Yeah, I honestly recommend... If you want a good movie that's about this... Not like a great movie necessarily, but a good movie about like this fallout. I would recommend the movie uh, Worth, starring Michael Keaton, which I believe is on Netflix. That's about like the insurance adjusters having to deal with like the fallout of 9-11. That was a good movie. Yeah. Yeah, that was good. 
That was a solid movie that has that as its main focus and deals with the emotional fallout of that from several characters, as opposed to in- Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, which is manipulative bullshit, as Adam mentioned. Uh, just uh, not a good showing from either any of these big stars that are in here that we know and love, or even poor Thomas Horn, who uh, this is his first and last acting performance. And uh, I feel sorry for that kid, but I blame Stephen Daltrey squarely for how oh, sure. fucking much yeah, yeah. He, he, he like really cheated that kid out of being able to do something interesting given so much that was like put against him. But still, very bad movie on every level. But let's get to a much better movie that unfairly didn't get any Oscar nominations, Widows. You have no idea, do you? Or did you choose not to know? Husbands aren't coming back. We're on our own. My husband left me the plans for his next job. All I need is a crew to pull it off. Why should we trust you anyway? Because I'm the only one standing between you and a bullet in your head. It's what I've learned from men like your late husband and my father is that you reap what you sow. Let's hope so. So, Widows came out November 16th, 2018, from uh, Academy Award-winning director Steve McQueen. This is his follow-up to uh, 12 Years a Slave, which had come out uh, back in 2013, uh, which, and he co-wrote this movie with Gillian Flynn, based on a British TV show. Um, and if you're unaware of this movie, basically it's about um, the titular widows who are the wives of these uh, sort of career criminals um, who have to uh, deal with the loss of their husbands at the beginning of the movie after they try and pull off a big heist and everything goes wrong. Um, but as things go along, they realize that, oh, the person that they had stolen money from was uh, this guy, uh, Jamal Manning, played by Brian Tyree Henry, who's running for alderman in Chicago, comes up to Viola Davis and says, hey, look, uh, you got to give me my money back uh, or else uh, things are going to happen, because he's also, in his past, he was a career criminal and all this, and uh, she ends up plotting to steal that money uh, from Colin Farrell, who is playing the opposing political force, who um, is the son of the guy who's been like in that position for so long, played by Robert Duvall. It's a big sort of like uh, political machinations heist movie of sorts. And uh, I saw this in theaters, and I loved it, but I remember at the time it was kind of uh, dismissed, not, really, not a lot of people saw it, it didn't get much of the Oscar buzz you would figure a movie made by a guy who made the best picture-winning movie from a couple years ago would get. And um, I think that's kind of a shame, and I think that hurt people seeing this movie, including yourself, Adam. I remember at the time you weren't that interested in it. Yeah, I mean, no interest, to be honest, until like talking to you about it. You're like, no, dude, it fucking slaps. You got to see it. You got to see it. And then, I mean, honestly, I finally watched it, I don't even know, man, six months ago for the first time, something like that, maybe even a year, uh, not that long ago, and I fucking loved it. Uh, there's many things about this movie I love. A, the the cinematography is amazing, and the fact that it's shot in just dingy-ass parts of Chicago for real, it, the, it's, you know, I that cliche like the fucking the landscape its own character but chicago is a character in this film adam it's a very good point right but it is though it applies you know you go from the boroughs and the 
the ghettos to like the ritzy area, the Irish area of Chicago, all this stuff. Like it, it, it really works. And the cast in this movie is just fucking insane. You know, we, of course, Viola Davis, we mentioned her, Brian Tyree Henry, Colin Farrell, Robert Duvall, John Bernthal, Liam Neeson, Elizabeth Daldecki, Michelle Rodriguez, Daniel Kaluuya. I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on and on and on. And it's just everybody's at the top of their game. Daniel Kaluuya alone is one of the most terrifying sort of drug dealer bad guys I've seen in, in years. He's the most terrifying henchman. He's a rare like henchman who is so much more terrifying than the main Terrifying. Guy. When he's eyeing down those dudes who are freestyle and you're like, oh, this is not going to end well for them. <laughs> There's no way. It's fucking great. Like, this movie is great. It's shot beautiful. The fucking Wonder Van, you know, escape in the very beginning, a heist, is just incredible. One of my favorite shots is the bit where after Colin Farrell has, like, the big rally thing and he gets in his car, and it's like, it's a shot that in any other movie you would get a lot of, like, inside the car with Colin Farrell talking to his constituents and stuff, but it's all on the outside of the car, and you hear the dialogue as they, like, go from this, like, poor part of town to, like, his actual, like, big palatial estate, and it's such an incredible shot where it, like, goes from the left side of the car to the right side of the car, and you get so much of, like, oh, what this politician is hiding behind, literally, in the terms of this car, like, what's going on while other people are living their fucking lives as politicians, like, oh, fuck, I hate these people and they're doing all this bullshit they're killing each other in the streets it's so crazy like oh my god it's it says it's such a great movie that's like inherently like in other hands this would be a traditional heist movie but i love it as like it's a heist movie that's about the fallout of like a regular heist movie like any other heist yeah. movie would be the one about like liam neeson and his crew john barenthal and all them and their their whole like reason for doing it would be like oh my wife oh i love my family my wife all this other stuff and this is the movie about those women who often get, like, tossed aside as motivations, who have to deal with the fallout of, like, oh, my husband did a horrible, fucked up, you know, robbery of some sort, so I have to deal with it. Yeah, now he's dead, and I gotta deal with this. Yeah, it's great. I, I mean, and the thing about this movie, yeah, it does have, obviously, it's a heist movie, but it's got a lot of good action. It also deals with politics and sort of class system. It also deals with religion. I mean, there's a lot to this movie. There is a lot in here. And all of it is given proper enough attention. That's one thing I, I another thing I will say about this movie, none of it felt, like, particularly rushed. There was not, nothing that was sort of Especially finding out it's based on like a British TV show. Yeah, which is yeah, which is crazy. I didn't even know the show, but yeah, it's it's pretty fucking phenomenal. Like, it's pretty great. And just these four women, you know, the main four with Michelle Rodriguez, Viola Davis, Cynthia Erivo, and Elizabeth Debicki. One of my favorite bits of the movie is kind of how how they end up in their their husband's old fucking like hideout or whatever. Right, the warehouse area where they're yeah, they, they're in there. There's all these shadows of their form of their you know dead husbands and all the shit they're into, and it becomes like this bonding place for them. Like it's so cool. What a cool way to do it, and it's just handled with such care. And another thing about this movie that I really love and respect, it's not like oh girl power. It's just they're normal people. Women or not, normal people who have to come up with something because they're in desperation. And it just so happens that they're women treated like normal fucking people instead of, they're girls. Like, it's just, it's a really, really well done movie. It, it's, it treats every these four women with the utmost respect. It gives them all some kind of arc and some kind of moment. Uh, it's just, it's really well handled. That's what I love is really like, this movie, I think a big trouble with the marketing is that it was very marked as sort of like an award season movie. 
in a more traditional way, just like very dramatic shots of people looking side to side at each other, just like, oh, we gotta do this, oh, this is gonna get real, and all this other stuff, but it didn't really promote the fact that this is a fucking crowd-pleaser movie. Like, this is extremely oh, yeah. entertaining. At the same time, it's dealing with all these, like, big political things and, like, these big messages just about, especially, like, women who do often feel, like, so downtrodden and, like, are often, like, treated as, like, oh, we don't, like, there's no problem with it. Like, they're they're just the wives of these, like, fucking criminal dudes. There's no way they're going to, like, do anything against us. It's totally fine. It's totally cool. Like, they're constantly, like, it's a movie that's clearly recognizes, like, these women are treated as second-class citizens in various ways, but at the same time, it's like, such a fucking badass movie about these ladies, like, getting their sort of revenge. Right, Viola Davis's wardrobe is lit. It's fucking, it's so good. She looks a fuck, like a million bucks the whole time. Like, she looks great. She's, dude, and how buff is she? Like, she really yes. put in the work for this fucking movie, man. And she's great in it. And she's great. And, you know, I watched this, uh, there's like a 55-minute uh, making of featurette. You know, so I watched it. And uh, one of my favorite moments of the featurette, even is Viola Davis talking about, you know, she's like, Steve came to me and said, you know, I don't want you to wear a wig. I want your real hair. I want you to be you. He's like, I've seen women who look like you with these white Irish guys in white, you know, interracial marriages and couples all throughout the world. She's like, but it's never been done on screen. They always have to do something different to change how the woman looks. He's like, and I don't want that. I want you. And Viola Davis was like, this, that was the most important part to me. She's like, I, you've never seen a couple like we are, me and Liam on screen, maybe ever. She's like, so for us to do that, like it opens up when you first meet us, we're in bed together and we're kissing. I'm like, that's so fucking cool. Like, that's the one thing this movie's got all these little moments that you really don't think about. Like even Michelle Rodriguez running the Quinciera store, which that's a huge thing in that culture. And you don't really think about it. And just Elizabeth Delbicki having to go back to like being a call girl and all stuff. Like there's a lot of like moments with these characters that, you know, are treated so with like care and with, you know, honoring and respecting the culture and sort of where, who these women are. It's none of it feels like forced throwaway. It's so important to who these women are in this movie. And like I said, it's given the utmost care. None of it feels like exploitive. None of it feels like, well, you know, like I said, you got to make badass chicks. There's none of that. It's so smart. That's the one thing I can say about this movie, too. That's another thing I can say about this movie. Not the one thing. I got a lot to say. But it's just smart from head to toe. This script and the decisions made, it's just so smart. I am just flabbergasted by, you know, that this movie, granted, I was part of it, but that this movie has just been so underseen as it is. Like, and I've recommended it to people too. And people are like, yeah, maybe. And none of them, nobody watches it. Nobody watches it. And it's like, I'm going to have to sit down with like people I know, like in person, like we're watching fucking widows. Cause I know anybody I watch with is going to enjoy it. There's so much in this movie to enjoy. Yeah. To go back to the thing you're talking about in terms of just like the, the sort of intimacy. Like I love all the flashbacks we do get of um, Viola Davis and Liam Neeson together. They have the thing where they start off in bed, but even like the scenes where we do get the two of them having to deal with like the fallout of their son being killed in that horrible way. I like the fact Awful. that it deals, it deals so much more with just the two of them arguing with each other and having like that horrible, tragic, like back and forth that sadly predicts the movie later. Just like, don't make the one thing I regret having a child with you. And then she says, well, maybe you should have, and maybe this wouldn't have happened to your kid if it was somebody else. 
who they were with. It's like, that's a really smart way of dealing with like such a huge systemic issue in an intimate character focused way. That's what this movie does so well. It's like, it's so character focused while dealing with these big macro issues. There's the micro element of like, it's like how it affects these people that we see throughout the movie in the middle of like a badass heist situation. It's like, it makes them so much more human in a way you don't get from like a lot of these genre movies. Right. You said it just perfectly. It's this very like character study and these beautiful moments just backed by badass scenes of action. Like, that's the other thing about this movie. For Steve McQueen to be his first real action movie, dude, he knows how to shoot action, this guy. Like, it's really well done. There's something enjoyable for everyone in this movie. If you want to see a cool heist movie with car chases and guns and explosions, it's there. If you want to see a character piece, it's there. If you want to see a movie about strong women, it's there. I mean, this movie, or anything about systemic racism or political things or corrupt cops or corrupt politicians, it's all here. I, I just, it's just so good. I mean, it's one of those movies that now I've seen it twice. I almost can't wait to watch it a third time, but I, to, but the third time I watch it, I got to watch it with somebody. Like, I'm probably going to make my wife watch this with me tomorrow. Like, honestly, <laughs> like, we're going to watch this and you're going to watch it with me. And I, th- I, have no doubt she'll like it. Right, and I mean, it just has, like, everybody has, like you mentioned, like, a really fun moment. Like, I referenced this earlier. I love Elizabeth Debicki, one, being just able to be so tall. Like, I forget I mean, how tall she is. Until, like, you see her in this movie where, like, she's against, like, Cynthia Revo and Viola Davis and Michelle Rodriguez, people who have averaged, like, slightly smaller height. And she's, like, six foot three. <laughs> so the shot has to go, like, well all the way back to get her in frame. It's like if, if a big bird wished to be human. Like, she's I mean, just I, so tall. Well, I'm she's so tall. Right. It's crazy. Right, but she gets to also be, like, this interesting character with stuff like the, like I mentioned, the whole thing where she puts on, like, that Russian accent at the gun show Great. and gets the guns Great. and leaves with the hot dog. Fuck yeah. That's so fun. Uh, but at the same time, she has to get, gets to have, like, the intimate moments. Like, I love her relationship with Lucas Haas. And yes. how, like, that evolves, where initially you feel like, oh, this is going to be, like, maybe a bit more developed than, like, the average call girl relationship. But it's like, oh, no, he's actually using you. Like, it's oh, yeah. so much just, like, how you get to see, like, the, many of the male, like, love interest characters in this movie had that initial, like, spark of, like, you can get why they were initially interested in them. But then they backstab him. And it's like, oh, fuck you. Like, especially, like, the Liam Neeson of it all. The biggest backstab of all. Just, like, especially with the, even the, the, the element of, like, Carrie Coon is the fourth widow in the actual story and she doesn't get attached to all this because as it turns out she's with Liam Neeson secretly this whole time and that baby is Liam Neeson's baby it's so fucked up when you find like when Viola Davis goes over to her house and sees the flask and then like bails because she knows like oh my god I know what this is and then the reveal that later she's like oh you son of a bitch we saw how intimate you were with her earlier you monster yeah you motherfucker he deserves everything that happens to him that piece of shit how dare you Yep. And and even like the, there's there's that element where like all of these even like male characters are incredibly human. Like I love all the back and forth between Colin Farrell and Brian Tyree Henry when they're trying to like basically uh, go back and forth about the race, which is like, look, what if I pull back from like my advertising or some of this other stuff? Maybe we can like make some kind of deal work out like these backdoor kind of political shenanigans that are going on, especially with Colin Farrell and Robert Duvall and the casual racism that's just going on throughout all of that. Robert Duvall flies off with some off-color words and Colin Farrell is like not even angry about the racism. He's just annoyed they have to deal with his dad this whole time. I love that relationship and how like fucking inherently like levels of skeevy it really is. Oh yeah. I mean, that's the other thing too. You know, 
you just I've I've actually it's so funny I've rewatched I've watched for the first time a couple Colin Farrell movies that I had never seen a twenty four movies but it's just you, you watch it and you realize what a chameleon this guy is and in this movie for, with him and Robert Duvall like you instantly believe oh yeah they're father and son yeah yeah and one of my favorite bits of this movie too is when you know Colin Farrell basically tells him I'm just waiting for you to die yes and Robert Duvall like oh you can tell that actually hurts him. Where this guy is like the whole movie, like nothing. This guy's just a fucking asshole. But that one moment that it hurts him, but also he's using that to try and manipulate Colin Farrell further mm-hmm. at the same mm-hmm. time. Yeah, it's such a great moment. God, those two. I mean, just fucking titans. That's one thing you could say about Steve McQueen. He got the best out of these people. Or even down to like uh, another great actor in this movie is Olivia, the White Terrier of Viola Davis. That's a great dog actor. <laughs> such a good girl. Right, she was such a good girl. Shout out, she was also at the same year in Game Night. She's Jesse Plemons' dog. Oh, what a good girl. The what best girl. girl. Great. <laughs> best supporting actress for Olivia, please. I mean, yeah, 100%. I love that her name's Olivia. I love when people give dogs human names. <laughs> right. But that scene, even when, like, when Brian Tyree Henry arrives at Viola Davis's place and, like, is just holding the dog, like, even before he gets, like, violent with the dog, like, when he's just holding her regularly, just, like, this feels off. This was like a Bond villain weird shit. Like, this isn't going to work out. And he's super intimidating in this, too. I mean, he's not Daniel Kaluuya intimidating, but he's super intimidating. But you believe why he'd be somebody who could, like, have sort of puppet strings on Kaluuya, which you mentioned him earlier, but Kaluuya is so amazing in a supporting part. Oh, he's so good. Anytime he fucking shows up, it's just immediate. Like, I don't know what he's going to do. Like, even earlier on when, like, they're at the um, cemetery for Liam Neeson's funeral and he's body language when he's just like leaning against that one statue and then has like the twiddly fingers like hello <laughs> it's like so and scary. even and how how well done is it even in that the fact that everyone is in black Brian Tyrion is in black but Data Kalu is wearing white yes you know just like a fuck you just even a further fuck you I'm not participating in this shit like it's it's so well done and and the scene where like he stabs that uh, one dude in the wheelchair at the bowling alley oh good is, god is fucking intense, or even just the look he gives when, like, he steals the truck from the ladies, and the way he, like, has his eyes focused, and, like, his teeth moving around, like, yeah, I fucking did this, I'm doing this, and then his death, the car crash of his death is so fucked up. It's so good, though. He deserves that (laughs) shit, too. What a motherfucker. But, yeah, I think that's the thing, it's like, this is what you get when you have somebody like a Steve McQueen taking on material that could be, like, very traditional, like, throwaway genre, like, this could be, like, a Liam Neeson movie. In worse rants, like the oh, one of the, like, absolutely! Oh, yeah, regular, 100%. Like, like Liam Neeson comes out in January and Dad's flock to it kind of movie. But yeah. I love even the fact that like that intentional casting of Neeson works so well. It's just like a, oh, this is like what they have to face off against, like the the face of like these kind of genre action movies. Um, but yeah, like all this stuff, like every single action set piece is so well done, but also untraditional in a way that has like this deliberate move that feels like, oh, this could be one of his like great one shots that he doesn't like shame or 12 years a slave, but it's applied to this badass action scene. I think that's the thing is that he has such a different control of the camera that makes it work at like such a different level for like traditionally schlocky material. No. Yeah. I completely agree. Steve McQueen, like he just, he's on top of his game. He's on top of every aspect you can tell. Like he, he, is 100% in tune with what he's trying to show and what he's trying to put out and what he's trying to make as far as a movie. It, it, it feels like his vision, you know, I'm sure he has to, but it almost feels like it's uncompromised. Like, this is exactly what Steve McQueen wanted to show you. He could get, you are watching exactly the movie he wanted to make. 
which could probably only come from a guy who had just had massive success with like an Oscar-winning movie, like Twelve Years a Slave. Yeah, I mean to the point to where, you know, even in the the feature that I watched and yeah, I read a little bit about the movie too, they were trying to push for him to shoot in New York or somewhere like that and fake it for Chicago, and he said, "No, I want to shoot in Chicago," and they're like, "Okay, it's going to cost more, but sure." Only because of that Oscar clout, where they like, all right, go ahead. Like, there's no question. I mean, that's what also got got him to be able to do something like the Small Axe movies, which if you have not seen out there, I would recommend the, the big like mini series of movies basically he put out for Amazon. Um, it's a really great series of things. But that dude has such a fascinating, diverse career as well. To the degree that I almost like, it's such a bummer that like, this isn't like the the big sort of like mainstream I success know. it could have been. Like, because like I said, this movie like in a big crowd would have fucking killed. It is like such a stellar example of like how to make a fun heist movie that still has like so many of these. Like layers underneath it. Oh, absolutely. And I'm a sucker for a good heist movie. My favorite movie of all time is a heist movie, and this is a really fucking stellar heist movie. Right, where it's mostly like the planning, actually, like it's a two hour movie, and we don't get the actual heist of sorts until about an hour 40 or so like before the, like the 30 minutes before the movie ends basically and the heist is like so immaculately put together which is like that tension of like oh my god things are fucking up all this other stuff um and uh, all the way down to like when robert duvall shows up you're like oh fuck he's here <laughs> oh no and you recognize Violet davis's fucking face mm-hmm. it goes to shit pretty quick um and also you know we haven't done a lot of like talk about her but shout out to cynthia revo who this year made, like, the one-two punch of Bad Times at El Royale. And this movie, I was just like, this lady's a fucking star. She's been on Broadway and shit, but, like, you have, like, movie star charisma. Like, from the moment, like, she's like, oh, I gotta, like, do this other job. Hold on, honey, I'm sorry, I just got home, but I gotta leave. And she pulls a fucking Terminator run. Like, I love that fucking run that she does. Oh, yeah, man, she fucking books it. She's she's the T-1000, dude. <laughs> exactly. And, and even when, like when she later uh, meets up with Viola Davis and Michelle Rodriguez brings her in, and it's just like, oh, can you vouch for her? I don't need a voucher. And all of this, she's like, yeah, fuck yeah, this is great. These personalities just like going off each other. Yep. She's pretty fucking great, dude. Um, But to, I guess you're back into Viola Davis. So before you go into like closing thoughts on this, after, you know, a huge career of supporting roles, this is her first leading role in a movie. And what do you think she brings to this that like most other like big stars couldn't have brought to that main character? Quiet strength, quiet power, quiet confidence. Like the the, the thing is, like you get the moments of her breaking down and all that, of course. But the, she never once feels like she's not in control. Like, she is just on point, dude. She's There's such a strength to her. And, and even, think about Viola Davis in just a look. Viola Davis is one of those people who can act with just her eyes. And you get every sense of what she's trying to say. Uh, she's just, she's fucking phenomenal, man. And uh, I, I just, I think, you know, all her years of being sort of, the character actor, how good she is at doing those sort of things. And it's just, I'm glad it's, you know, a character actress who got to do this and sort of step up and Viola Davis got to do that. And I mean, she's incredible. She's incredible. And I think if we would have got like sort of the big mainstream actress, like it would have just been another fucking potentially Oscar baby performance. 
and I didn't get that out of Viola Davis in this movie at all. I got that she really gave a shit about what she's doing, and maybe that hunger for the starring role adds to it because uh, it's just a dynamite performance. Well, I think it's like you mentioned, like that that quiet strain. I think that's the thing that she has able to display in like even a lot of her smaller supporting roles. But I think it's more that vulnerability that I find it, like make, sets her apart. So she can do like both of those things. Because I think like in the only other time I can think of where she was like this truly vulnerable is some like offenses. But that's a movie that's totally built on like the like sort of Oscar Beatty performance, a great performance, but still very much like a performance of like, I am breaking down because my family's falling apart. I like that in this movie, she's able to display like both sides of that coin to even the degree of like, she introduces the fact of like, hey, look, we can't be friends after this. There isn't gonna be some reunion. After this, we're done. We're never seeing each other again. We're taking our cuts and going home. But the ending of this movie has this beautiful soulful thing where like she's at that restaurant and she gives that money away for like, I want you to build the, you know, rebuild the school library and name it after my son. And then she sees Elizabeth Debicki and has like the last shot of the movie is her smile. Like, Hey, how you been? It's like this right. beautiful, genuine moment of just like, she doesn't have to be like the hard ass, like, you know, principal or authority figure cop or whatever that she's in so many other movies. She has, she actually gets to be like a sensitive person who actually has like layers to her. Yeah, man, because she's fucking awesome. Yeah, that's what she is. Davis is awesome, baby. Uh, But yeah, and we can keep going about Widows, but um, let's go ahead and do our final wrap-up thoughts on Widows. Uh, You know, like I said, man, it's a great heist movie, great action movie, filled with wonderful performances, a lot of nuanced sort of things, and a lot of good messages, a lot of poignant things. I I think there's something in here for everybody. Um, I, I just, you know... I fucking love it, man. It's just great. It's one of those that you really hope that more people will see. Yeah, if nothing else, definitely. Um, despite us saying so many specific things about this movie, uh, we possibly couldn't spoil like the entire joy of watching Widows through. Widows is one of those great movies where it's like a little over two hours, but it doesn't feel at all that length. It speeds by at such a clip, uh, and yet you get so much of like the emotional investment, the political investment, the just like a wow entertainment factor and really genuine character moments that like you don't get in a lot of like, especially sort of like Oscar time movies because there's so much more focused on like, Oh, we have to like win awards. We could have like, that's when you get your extremely loud, incredibly closest. They're much more emotionally manipulative versus this is a movie that has like so much emotional investment and charm and tragedy and beauty to it. While at the same time, it just fucking kicks ass. We fucking kick so much ass and it's such a shame that like this movie has gone just came out quietly didn't get make much of an uh you know a dent in either the oscar race or even just box office wise i was out there championing it just like widows see it please it's great go out there and see it. it's that's such an awesome movie but you people didn't listen so hopefully you listen now and you can be like adam who was rightfully and entertainingly proven wrong yeah motherfuckers <laughs> But now, Adam, it's time we get to our weekly segment, The Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double 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 Redo. Redo. So every week on The Double Redo, um, in addition to talking about our two features, uh, Adam and I uh, recommend our own uh, sort of Double Redo, where we talk about a good movie we'd recommend you all see, and a bad movie we would have you all avoid each. Uh, So each of us has two movies. And Adam, you're starting out, so what are your Double Redo choices? Alrighty, so for my bad pick, 
I think I have what would probably be the obvious one. Not to say that she's bad in it, but the movie itself is fucking dog shit. I have the original Suicide Squad. Not the Suicide Squad. Suicide Squad. Uh, that dumpster fire of a shit show. You know, the one with uh, Will Smith and Jared Leto and all that garbage. Uh, it's a terrible fucking movie. Uh, from pretty much beginning to end, it tries so hard to be Guardians of the Galaxy, and then with the needle drops and all this stuff. Oh, hey, but don't forget, though, Slipknot can climb anything. What the fuck are we talking about here? It's just, just it's a garbage dumpster fire of a movie. Uh, it, it, it's not entertaining. I don't even think it's particularly well shot. Uh, the character design of the sort of the bad, the, the whatever they are creatures, are it, it's it's just so uninspired and bad this is just comic book movie fucking bottom of the barrel garbage it's is it the worst dc has offered possibly uh if not it's definitely in the bottom of three uh it's just not good garbage and then for my good quickly i have a movie i i think i might even call this before for a redo if not calling it now it's a real sort of heady sci-fi movie it's a remake but i still really like it 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 might just be uh i mean one of my favorite scores of all time even in this film i have solaris the george clooney starring film uh viola davis is in it Eh, not a huge part but a pretty substantial uh role she's really fucking good in it uh obviously everybody else i really like in it i think visually the movie's amazing and like i said the score is one of my favorites uh, it's just one of those also that wasn't really seen and I get why it's sort of a heady kind of a long, eh, you know, sci-fi almost horror type film. Uh, but I actually really, really like it. Um, yeah, I haven't seen Solaris, um, for, for years. It was one of those like that not, didn't have like the best reputation necessarily, but I've seen it have like a bit more of like a cold appreciation, especially amongst like Steven Soderbergh fans. Um, and also, I'd been curious to, like, watch the original before the remake, and the original's, like, three hours fucking long, so it's yeah. always been, like, kind of a hurdle. But I'm fascinated to watch it at some point, for sure. I remember that one is one of the ones that actually got an F cinema score. Uh, Which is like, wild. Wild. Well, I mean, I guess I get it in terms of, based on what I've heard about that movie and, like, average audience members immediately coming out of it, like, what do you think? Oh, this is, like, what the fuck is this shit? Yeah, <laughs> like, I guess yeah. I get it. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> Right, right. Uh, but then Suicide Squad, yeah, we've talked about it many times. I would say that's my least favorite of the DCEU movies because it's the one that feels the least like an actual completed movie. Like, even compared to, say, the Joss Whedon version of Justice League, that feels like at least like an outline of a movie. This is like an elevator pitch made into a fucking movie where they have barely anything. <laughs> and you can tell it was, like, so poorly reshot around, and it just is, like, it, it's such bottom-barrel sort of, like, attempted universe-building blockbuster filmmaking that just feels, like, so drab and ugly, and it's just, like, it's it's so grating and, like, easily, like, one of my least favorites are, like, big blockbuster movies, regardless of comic books or not, in the last, like, decade or so. Uh, pretty dire stuff with that one. But uh, for me, uh, my choices, uh, my first good one here is uh, one that came out on Netflix, got a few Oscar nominations, um, but uh, has kind of like disappeared to the wayside. And it's kind of a shame. I have Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, uh, which is the it's based on a true story in terms of Ma Rainey was an actual person, a blues singer um, who in the course of this movie takes place in the course of like one afternoon day in which uh, she is recording at um, a studio um, that's uh, over in Chicago. And uh, she has like, you know, certain demands, all this other stuff. And it's dealing with like her 
kind of like trying to maintain some kind of power that she can get obviously as like a black musician in the 20s uh versus uh we see a lot of the stuff with the uh, sort of session musicians also who are arguing with each other uh, who are played by a host of great actors like glenn turman and coleman domingo and of course chadwick boseman which this was his last film uh before his tragic passing and um, if nothing else, like Viola Davis is great in it for sure. She it's one of of course another rare leading role for her. It's based on August Wilson play, so it's a lot of like people in one room talking to each other, not necessarily the most cinematic thing. But um, it has so many great like people bouncing off of each other, and it's it's worth seeing nothing else for like Bozeman got an Oscar nomination for this and was infamously didn't win. Um, with that Oscar ceremony where they were leading up to Best Actress so that they could have given it to him posthumously. And then Anthony Hopkins won all of a sudden. It was like, oh, good night, everybody. And I hate that that's the legacy of this movie because it's an incredible performance from Bozeman, who does, like, so much with that part and has, like, such, like, interesting facets to his character that shows how much we would miss that dude for being not just Black Panther, but a really nuanced, interesting actor. But also Viola's great. Like, the, this cast is so awesome in general. But, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting movie about sort of, like, uh, black blues musicians at that particular time that I would recommend to anybody out there who's at all curious. Um, and then My Bad is another one where she plays like an authority figure, more of a side character. Um, and it's not necessarily a terrible movie, but it's like peak example of like very forgettable early 2010s blockbuster for me. I have Ender's Game, which is based on the Orson Scott Card, uh, you know, novel that had like a series of books adapted from it, um, and was kind of like a wet fart of a YA adaptation when it came out. It was part of it, like, sort of the tail end of that YA trend. And I kind of get why it follows, like, a lot of the same beats you would see in, like, Hunger Games and some of these other things. Like, built around an interesting premise, like, basically crafting these children to, like, play war games that ultimately are, spoilers, real by the end of it. Um, and, like I said, I don't think it's necessarily terrible, but it's such, like, a nothing burger of a wet fart of a movie, despite having... A lot of great talent, like young Asa Butterfield, who I think is a pretty good actor as the main lead, or Harrison Ford is like the main sort of adult lead, and Viola Davis, a bunch of other people. It's, despite the engaging idea, it feels like such a, like, boring, dull, drably made movie as well, that just sort of feels like, oh, it's so disposable. I get why it wasn't very successful at the time, and it feels like it's one of many examples of Viola Davis coming in, doing her part fine, but ultimately just kind of like, you know it all for just this bland, forgettable blockbuster movie that no one's going to really remember. I haven't seen either of these. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, all right. I haven't heard anything about uh, Ma Rainey's. Like you said, it was just one of those got lost. I am aware of the Chadwick Boseman Oscar sort of snafu, but I didn't even know the title of the movie, to be 100% honest. I, I was sort of checked out that year. What, 2020? Why would you be checked out in that particular year? I don't know what would make you feel dejected. and like. <laughs> I, I had some things going on that nobody else did. Uh, very exclusive, just to me. You were the only one that was affected by the coronavirus. Just you. That's just you who were dealing with that problem. How do you know about that? <laughs> uh, but but had, uh, Ender's Game, I, I've never really had an interest. Didn't read the book, obviously. And the preview just didn't sell it for me, so I never even tried. I will say with that Oscar controversy my favorite part of all that element of it that nobody remembers but i love that i will never forget is watching walking phoenix's face as he has to deliver that because he'd won for joker so he's doing like the whole like rigmarole and obviously he's walking phoenix so he's already like kind of awkward on stage by himself just like uh and here, here are the nominees and the winner is anthony hopkins who isn't here because he's in england sleeping because he's 83 years old um good night everybody <laughs> that's how the ceremony ends <laughs> 
Jesus. <laughs> oh, one of those. Especially, well, like, they had to, like, rework the entire thing so actor was at the end of the ceremony. It's like, no, you could have just done Best Picture. And we all would have moved on from this. But you made this, like, the exclamation point, And so it was, like, a question mark? And then it ended? <laughs> Hot take. The Oscar ceremonies have had some problems lately. What? No. No. What are you talking about? But, you know, that that was an awkward year that year. The next year happened and nothing bad happened. Nothing nope. weird or awkward that completely affected the flow of things happened. Nope. At all. <laughs> nope. Well, um, it's time that we go ahead and just repeat our titles out there for everybody. So, Adam, your titles? Uh, for my bad, I had Suicide Squad. Again, that is Suicide Squad, not The Suicide Squad, which is actually a terrific movie. With a great Viola Davis performance. Great Viola Davis performance. And for my good, I had Solaris, which I also really thoroughly enjoy. Uh, and then for my good, I had Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And my bad, I had Ender's Game. What a good title. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. What a good title. Yeah. It's a really interesting title. Uh, shame that didn't draw people on Shocker Netflix, where everyone was just like, oh, what? 25 other things came out that second, so we couldn't oh, watch them. at least. <laughs> well, on that note, it's time uh, we start getting to the wrap-up of the shows, though. Stay tuned. We'll be doing our picking for next week's episode uh, as we go along here. But first, we want to thank some people like Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen more of his music, chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Christian Thor Lally for our artwork. Uh, follow him at Night of Water. Uh, that's Night with a K, underscore of, underscore water, for uh, more of his great stuff. And then thanks to our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash dedbpod, where for just $1 a month, you get to listen to bonus podcasts or... Um, you know, vote in polls uh, for individual movies or topics that we cover for an episode. And, uh, you know, stay tuned for uh, around the end of this month, you'll be getting our bonus episode, which will be an audio commentary for Waterworld. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Waterworld. Waterworld, baby. <laughs> that classic that everyone's still talking about, Waterworld. Uh, yeah. All that for just See the stunt one ride day. that is probably still going on. Or the stunt show, yes. It's still yeah, going on. I'm sure it's still... Is it still going on? I, I think it is. I don't know if COVID Good affected it or not, but God. it was going on for like 20-something years. That's the legacy of that particular movie. We'll talk about that in the commentary, I'm sure. Which you can listen to for just that $1 by the end of the month. But for more of us, find us at DEDVPod on Twitter and Facebook. And also you can uh, send emails to us, doubleedgedoubleville at gmail.com all spelled out and for more of me find me on twitter and letterbox at not the who's tommy i also do some writing at mariannithomas.wordpress.com and at film-cred.com you could find me on instagram at atom or adam a-t-o-m underscore o-r underscore a-d-a-m or you can find me on letterbox at schwanson that's s-c-h-w-a-n-d-t-s-o-n and uh, for more of our audio antics, uh, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, why not listen to all the other great shows on the network? And uh, you can also dig into our archives and our Podbean main feed for like 200-something episodes before we even join Talk Film Society. And nothing else, if you can't you know, support us on the Patreon, money can be tight, we can totally get it. The completely free way to help us out is to rate, review, or simply share the show around because it gets us visibility out there in the internet ether. Yeah, please do. We need the money. And we don't get much money from you sharing, but it helps us out. Well, it might. People might fucking join the Patreon. You never know. That's true. Or just the, I want. I just want people to hear me. Nobody listens to me anymore. 
Yes, I have to listen to him all the time. And I do it for absolute free. I don't even have to download anything. I just fucking pull up a Zoom recording and he's there. Yeah, begrudgingly. <laughs> well, Adam, it's time now we did our picking for next week, which we do this every week on the show. At the end of the episode, we pick a good and a bad feature. We switch up on the quality of who has the two good choices and two bad choices we pick from for that. And basically, um, in this case, Adam has the two good choices and I have the two bad choices for next week's episode. And we assign those numbers between 1 and 10. And the other person picks them between 1 and 10 and they're like, oh, I'm going to say number 7. And that's probably close to the other person's number 6 pick, which ends up being the bad or good pick for, you know, whichever one of us has the choices there. And keep in mind, we do have the Godfather rule. Where Adam and I still have a, a single veto in our back pocket we have to use by next May. Uh, where if we hear one choice that someone ends up picking, like, oh, you pick number six, that's close to number seven, which is this particular movie. The other person has the potential to say, actually, I'll take the cannoli. Unless that choice is gone and that veto is used, we have to go with whatever other choice is available. It's a real good way to fuck each other. Right, that's true. But we have it's selective. It's, it's just like it's a bullet in the chamber. One single bullet, we have to use it wisely. One bullet's enough, baby. One bullet's enough. Well, let's see if we'll end up using that for next week's topic, which, uh, you know, this was picked by our patrons over at patreon.com slash gedvpod. Uh, we decided, you know, there's this movie Blonde coming out, the Marilyn Monroe movie, uh, starring Ana de Armas, that is rated NC-17, the first example of that in quite a while, uh, which is an interesting rating that has a lot of stigma attached to it. Uh, so our patrons voted for NC-17 movies as a topic, which is very curious, especially given, you know, NC-17 is sort of like a scarlet letter in the film world. Oh, yeah, for sure. NC-17 are unrated. If you go to the theater with that, you're fucked, basically. Right, you can't really get much advertising, and even then you have a limited audience view, even more so than an R rating. There's a lot to mm-hmm. that. Right, yes. And uh, you have the two good choices for that. I have the two bad so uh, we'll each uh, go ahead and pick a number between 1 and 10. So for your two good choices, Adam, I'm going to pick number 8. All right, at number 8, on the dot. Uh, crazy, this movie is by a director that I'm just surprised we haven't talked about yet. Uh, it's a fucking wild ride of a movie, man, uh, but I really like it. I have William Friedkin's Killer Joe. Oh, okay, I have seen Killer Joe. I, I remember digging Killer Joe, but it's been about a decade. So, you know what? Yeah, and especially a Friedkin. Somehow we haven't covered a Friedkin. Yeah, I'm definitely not taking the cannoli on that. Hell yeah. And at number two, I have a movie that I actually just recently watched. Surprised that it's a Lars von Trier movie that's, you know, unrated. But I have The House That Jack Built. Oh, yeah. Um, that's one I have not watched, uh, mainly because I'm just like, oh, a Lars von Trier serial killer movie? That's NC-17. Um, I need to be in the mood for that. There's some heavy shit in this movie, man. Well, are you saying that Lars von Trier movie is extremely depressing? Look at the human psyche? Well, I could say this about the movie. It's either a masterpiece or the most pretentious shit that exists. I'm not sure. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, on that note, uh, time for you to pick between my two bad choices, Adam. So go ahead. Number between one and ten. Uh, I'll go number three. Number one, I have a movie I've been waiting to cover on the show for so long. Um, it's from a director we have covered before. Um, it has an infamous reputation to it, but goddamn, I can't wait to talk about it in full, glorious detail, all laid bare. It's Showgirls, baby! Yeah! Hashtag Nomi Malone for life. 
<laughs> I can't take the cannoli on this. I mean, it's showgirls. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. I, I, it's it's exactly the appropriate bad one. For NC-17, hell yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, though on the other side of things, over at uh, number nine, I had one from uh, John Waters' most recent film uh, that apparently just uh, you know got the NC-17 and kind of ended his career, I guess. I have A Dirty Shame. Never seen that one. Uh, I'm good with showgirls. I'm not a big John Waters. I'm not a John Waters fan, I don't think. I tried. I, I, I like John Waters as a personality. I'm not necessarily a fan of his films. Uh, but Adam, we're missing out another Johnny Knoxville performance. But Dirty oh, Shame is a shame. darn. Oh, gosh. <laughs> darn, darn indeed. But yeah, so, all right. Killer Joe and Showgirls. Uh, Gina Grishon double feature. Hell yeah. Gina Grishon month. Yeah, hell <laughs> September. We did the Viola Davis episode was retroactively. Yeah. <laughs> hell yeah hell yeah uh but yeah so uh we'll be talking about those two next time but until then uh everybody just watch out for those daniel kaluas out there they're gonna look at you weird and man you don't want to be on the end of his fucking eyes and there is no sixth burrow tom hanks lied what i know i'm sorry oh, i can't believe tom hanks lied to me he would never lie to me 